you're visiting with us this morning, we will be in Acts 14. A few of you know that this week I was in Cincinnati to take my mom to a a knee replacement surgery. I was able to stay for a few days for the rehab and all of that. And I have to testify to the Lord by saying modern medicine is an incredible common grace of God. You can pull up to a building, get dropped off, have a worn out body part replaced, and be on your way home within a matter of hours. It's utterly amazing. When I was at the hospital, I knew once my mom went into surgery that it was going to be a few hours before I could see her post-op. And so I went for a walk outside. And as I went outside and 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 I surveyed the immediate landscape of the area, it dawned on me that as far as I could see was medical building after medical building after medical building. I mean, from, from heart specialists to sleep specialists, from, from dialysis clinics to dermatology centers, each building, in a sense, was, was testifying to the fact that despite all of our efforts in pursuing physical health, there is still something seriously wrong with the human body. Similarly, as we survey the immediate landscape of today's passage, each scene that we come across testifies to the fact that despite all of our efforts pursuing spiritual health, there is something still seriously wrong with the human heart. Today's passage is Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. And you'll recall that Paul recently preached the good news of the gospel at a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Some received this message, and others rejected the message. Those who rejected the message, they hated it so much that they actually drove Paul and Barnabas out of their town, out of their district. And so the apostles shook off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them, and they left for another town, and that town was Iconium. When they arrived at Iconium, those who rejected the message here, they hated it so much that they poisoned the minds of others against the disciples. You'll remember that from last week as Art taught us. Those opposed to the message went so far as planning to stone Paul and Barnabas to death. But the brothers got wind of it, so they fled and went to Lystra and Derbe. Which brings us to today's passage. Hear then the word of Almighty God from Acts 14, beginning in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul Looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, 
the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So our glorious father, what a joy, what a privilege to call you father. Our father in heaven, would you help us now? Would you, would you care for your children? Would you help us to see, both in this passage and in our own lives, your provision and your loving kindness demonstrated throughout history and demonstrated throughout our own lives? And will you help us to see the glory of your provision for our sin? Namely, Father, the gift of your only Son for the forgiveness of sins. To that end, Holy Spirit, would you lead us now and accomplish what you desire in us and among us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So take your pick here in the passage But I think the most jolting aspect of today's passage is that the people of Lystra go from from offering sacrifices to Paul one moment to sacrificing Paul just moments later. Paul goes from being worshipped by the people to being stoned by the people in, in a jarring turn of events. But what has to happen in the human heart? What mental gymnastics need to be processed in order to move from seeking to exalt a man one moment to seeking to execute that same man just a few moments later? As the NLT puts it in Jeremiah 17.9, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? 
Brian Chappell encourages people to ask two questions of any biblical text. First, what does this passage reveal about the character of God who initiates salvation through Christ? And second, what does this passage reveal about the heart of man that requires salvation through Christ? This particular passage reveals both the depths of man's sinfulness and the heights of God's goodness and loving kindness. So the essence of our main point this morning can be summarized very tightly like this. God's greatest provision is the gift of his son for the forgiveness of sin. God's greatest provision is the gift of his son for the forgiveness of sin. Now, we'll look at four scenes from our passage. These will stay up for the rest of the time. So if you're a note taker, just kind of leave yourself some space in between these. In verses 8 through 10, we want to unpack the idea that power is displayed for a purpose in this scene. In verses 11 through 13, we'll see that the response or the praise of the people misses the point of what just happened. In verses 14 through 17, we'll see preaching that that demonstrates not only God's provision, but his patience. And in verses 18 through 20, we'll see that passion, in this case, actually leads to persecution of the apostles. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, which it's hard to know exactly what that phrase means, but the most natural reading of it is, He's listening to Paul share, and there's an eagerness in him that Paul recognizes, and so Paul speaks directly to him. And he says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. That's awesome. (laughs) But the key here is to note the similarities between the healing in our passage here in Acts 14 and the healing back in Acts 3, when Peter and John healed the man at the gate called Beautiful. Now, the reason that Luke includes these details that are so similar, like the man was lame from birth, the apostles looked intently at him, and after the healing, the man jumped or leapt up and began to praise God, is because all miracles, all healings in the New Testament have a purpose. But why is it important here? What is the purpose of this particular display of power in Acts 14? Recall in Acts 3 that the people, much like in our passage, wrongly attributed the power of the healings to the apostles. In Acts 3, Peter said to the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety we made this man walk? In Acts 3, the point of the display of power was to confirm 
the apostles were commissioned by Jesus and they were deputized with his power. But the ultimate point was to validate the message of good news that Peter was preaching in Acts 3. So in our story then, Acts 14, multiple themes are being emphasized. Just as Peter was recognized as the apostle to the Jews, so too here we see that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is also affirmed as apostolic through a very similar healing miracle. This affirmation serves the greater purpose of validating the truthfulness of Paul's message. It's important because that means that the kingdom of God has, has not just come to earth. The kingdom of God has not just come to the Jews. The kingdom of God has come to people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Not only is Isaiah 35 being fulfilled among the Jewish people, but this prophecy is being fulfilled even among Gentiles, evidenced by the fact that the blind eyes of Gentiles have been opened. The ears of the deaf have been unstopped. Mute Gentile tongues now shout for joy. You remember that from just a few weeks ago. And the lame legs of a particular Gentile man here in Lystra now jump and leap like a deer. Isaiah 35. The gospel has finally made it far enough to the ends of the earth that there's no synagogue in this town. But note in verse 9 that the man who was healed was, was listening to Paul speaking. This is, a, this is a great lesson for us to remember. We don't need to be in a church situation to engage people with the gospel. In fact, it's obvious most of the people are not in here. They're out there. So it won't be in a church or a synagogue context. Paul didn't need to be seen as a synagogue teacher to share what the scriptures said. Paul was probably just standing in the street or maybe just in some public area. And he was addressing more than likely in this context, just illiterate pagans who had no idea what the scriptures said were completely ignorant of the Old Testament. So what was his strategy? How did this Hebrew of Hebrews, how did this Pharisee of Pharisees, how did he engage people that were so unlike him in this context? He just started talking to them. He just had a conversation. <clears throat> we don't always need to move our conversations immediately toward religion or spiritual matters, just looking for some opportunity somewhere to slip in the gospel. Just start talking to people about anything. Ask them good questions about work and family and their interests. And then listen for their answers. There are endless opportunities to offer perspectives that, that, that lovingly challenge another person's presuppositions or, or that counter the prevailing view of the day and the culture. 
If they ask about your thoughts, just naturally testify to the truth by simply sharing what you really believe about whatever it is that you're talking about. And don't be afraid to tell them how you came to that conclusion. The hardest part is just starting the conversation. You may not feel like you have the gift of evangelism, but if you can carry on a conversation with another human being, you've got the tools that you need in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. One time when I was on an airplane, I was praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with this woman who was sitting next to me. And I couldn't think of anything to start the conversation at all. So I started it like this. Wow, we got up high really fast, didn't we? <laughs> Lamest conversation starter ever. And she answered me in Filipino, by the way. But then later when I was reading a a passage from a particular book, she leaned over and in perfect English said to me, about that chapter that you're reading on legalism, can you explain that to me? You can be totally lame as a conversationalist and you can still get an opportunity to share the gospel. Just go for it. Now in Acts 3, at that healing the people were in absolute awe of Peter and of John. That's why he had to tell them, stop staring at us. Why are you acting like it's our power that made this happen? Here in Acts 14, note what Paul says. Men, why are you doing these things? Why are you worshiping us? Not more than 50 years prior to this, there was a a Latin poet named Ovid. His collected works were called the Metamorphoses. And in there, he recorded a local legend that said that the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, had visited this exact region, the, the hill country of Phrygia. But they came as mortal men. And they went about the whole town looking for shelter looking for hospitality, and no one helped them except for one elderly couple. And so the gods, in this context, they rewarded this couple by lifting their home up onto a hilltop. That is, before they destroyed the whole region with a flood. So I think, I think the people of Lystra were zealous, zealous to acknowledge the possibility that the gods had returned. So they were willing to offer sacrifices to them, whoever they were, just in case. But the people's response in Acts 14, it's a good reminder about how many people in the world, for whatever the reason, fail to rightly attribute the work of God in the world to the one true and living God. But because of what is at stake and this reality, 
Missions has to be on the forefront of our thinking all of the time. There are almost 7.7 billion people alive on the planet today, and the vast majority of them do not worship the one true God as he rightly deserves. In fact, many people alive today worship false gods with the same zeal as the people in our passage. Then consider 55 to 60 million people a year die and tens of millions of them don't know Jesus. The seriousness of this should should keep us awake at night, praying. This reality should keep us awake at night, thinking, thinking hard about new ways to get the good news of the gospel out to the people who need to hear it before it's too late. But think about it. We have the most joyful news imaginable. We've been given the most joyful Commission that could be given to any people to share the good news of the gospel, that there is hope, there is salvation found in the name of God's glorious Son. So let us not be hesitant. This is serious and it's glorious and it's joyful. Now, in terms of honoring God as He deserves, we need to recognize that the people who are in the most danger are not the people who are ignorant about God. But those who are in the most danger are those who believe ideas that they are convinced are compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet are not. This is just a modern day syncretism. Jesus plus something else. Many American churches and multiple denominations are in very dangerous positions. And I say this with a pit in my stomach. They are in very dangerous positions because they have capitulated to the world, sacrificing biblical truth and integrity on the modern day altars of tolerance and inclusivity. Or to look at the issue of worshiping God from another angle. Consider Nadab and Abihu. These priests were consumed by fire when they were worshiping God in Leviticus 10. Not for worshiping the wrong God. But for worshiping the right God in the wrong way. They decided to worship God in the way they wanted to worship God rather than the way God had instructed them to worship Him. As they found out, worshiping God in a manner that is not pleasing to Him is extremely dangerous spiritually, and for them it proved to be deadly physically as well. Or to take the dangers surrounding misplaced worship to an even deeper level. Consider that it is possible to worship the right God 
in the right way, saying the right things, and still fail to honor God. These people draw near with their mouth, and they they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 29 and verse 11. The fear of going through the motions for us as a church without our hearts fully engaged, that's what keeps me up at night. But feel the tension. Has any of us ever worshipped God fully from the heart at any moment? Thank God for his kindness and greatest provision, the gift of his son for the forgiveness of sin. Thank God for Jesus, whose heart was always perfectly engaged with the Father at all times. The one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. John 8, 29. Despite the the wavering nature of our hearts, Jesus has unwaveringly pleased the Father on our behalf. He did so to make pure and passionate worship possible for our everlasting joy and for the glory and honor of God forever. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit now dwells within you. So you can worship in spirit and in truth. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to worship God with your whole heart. There is even freedom to confess to God when you know you're not worshiping God with your whole heart. Because you are covered by the blood of Jesus because you are in union with him. So worship God with all your might, in freedom, and in joy, and in truth. May we be as zealous as as Paul and Barnabas to preserve the right and true worship of God and of God alone for the joy of as many people throughout the earth as possible. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, that is, that the people were about to offer sacrifices to them in worship of them, when the apostles heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
as this began to unfold, there was probably at least a brief moment where Paul and Barnabas had no idea what was going on. That is until the priest of Zeus came down with a bull and garland. Then they knew right away they're about to offer sacrifice to us. And that was absolutely, as you might guess, utterly unacceptable to them. So they intervened quickly to stop the false worship. But picture yourself in this situation. Picture the the chaos of the crowd. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed to act quickly? You needed to act quickly to prevent something bad from happening, but you only had a few moments to react. This may have played out multiple times for you if you're a parent (laughs) and you have a walking toddler, right? I remember one time we were at the beach and and, and a huge wave took Luke out about another 12 feet instantaneously. And I realized I'm not touching the ground either. You know, and I thought, are we in a rip current now? And at that moment, as I was about to figure out, do I just go for him and then we both go out? I just saw Max and Jack just kind of coasting along from another direction, scooped up Luke and just kept on coming. And I praised God for that. Because in a matter of moments, who knows what could have happened. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew you needed to say something, but you only had a few moments, a few seconds to decide what you needed to say? I was kind of hilariously talking to my sons the other day about how many fights in high school and college were avoided by one quick word in a situation. More than I would care to tell you. But you only have a second. You only have a second to figure out what you're going to say. Under pressure, under pressure, your adrenaline can get pumping and your mind can get started racing really quickly as you, as you try to figure out what do I need to do? What do I need to say? There's time pressure. There's situational pressure. Undoubtedly, Paul and Barnabas felt both of these things. So they run out into the crowd. They, they, they tear their robes and they say, why are you doing these things? In other words, why are you worshiping us or at least attempting to? What is fascinating to me is what Paul says next. In the moment, under pressure, in everyday language, what he says is as compact a description of the gospel as you will ever hear. Verse 15, we bring you good news the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things, repent of your sin, and turn toward the one true and living God who is the creator of all things. In other words, put your faith in him. Now, we tend to think of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 as a, as a, as a nice, tight summary of the gospel. And it is, right? For I delivered to you what I received as a matter of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is the gospel in a nutshell. But how succinct of a summary statement are the first words out of Paul's mouth in this situation? We bring you the gospel. Turn from your sin and toward the living God. There it is. What's, what's almost as impressive and, and maybe even more interesting about what Paul says next in his little mini sermon here is that in seed form, he essentially argues 
the exact same things that he argues in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. In verses 16 and 17, Paul essentially argues that throughout history, God patiently endured the sin of many, indeed all, nations. But those nations were still without excuse because during that whole time, not only did creation itself continuously testify to the glory of God, but even God's kind provision for the people, that is, meeting their needs in a way that brought satisfaction and joy to their hearts. I'm just pulling the language right out of the verses. Paul says that was also a continuous witness revealing the goodness and greatness of the one true God. When Paul unpacks these ideas in Romans 2, he says, Do you presume upon his kindness? Do you presume upon his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That really is the question for you this morning. Especially if you've never turned from your sin and toward God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't really matter what the reason is for why you haven't done that. I mean, maybe you think there isn't enough definitive evidence to make a committed decision to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you look back over your life and you just think, Ugh, it's complicated. It's a mess. What good is God going to do with all this? And why didn't he bail me out sooner? That may be true. That may be true for you. But listen carefully to what God's word is saying here. And if you're a believer, let me add this admonition to you as well. If you are in a place where you have been resisting God's work in your life because you are clinging to vain things, that is worthless things, things of no eternal value, then you, then you also need to think carefully about what God's word is saying here. This is what God's word says, regardless of the circumstances of your life. Not only has the glory of creation been a continuous witness to the reality of God in your life, but the fact that he has provided for the needs and joys that you have experienced in your life in a way that has satisfied your heart at some measure, in some measure and in some way, this also serves as a witness to God's kind presence in your life, no matter how difficult your life has been. Calvin said, God's word serves as as the spectacles through which God's revelation in creation becomes visible again. In other words, the truth of God's word becomes the lens through which you can rightly see the way God is 
and the way God has always been witnessing to his presence in your life. It may have been blurry before, but God's word brings clarity, crystal, clear clarity. The beauty of redemption is that despite all of the complex problems of our human condition, and there are many, but despite all of the complex problems of our human condition, God has provided one glorious resolution to all of them, namely atonement for sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. As you reflect on your life, my hope, my prayer for you is that, that you, you will see with fresh eyes the kindness of God in your life through his faithful provision as well as his ongoing patience with your sin. If you do, if you, if you see it, May I exhort you to turn from whatever has kept you from God and turn toward the one true and living God by faith for the salvation of your soul. If you do see it, you will come to know personally the reality that God's greatest provision in your life is the gift of his son for the forgiveness of sin. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So how is it possible, considering the human heart, how is it possible that you could move from exalting Paul one moment to seeking to execute Paul just a few minutes later? Now, even if there's a little bit of time that has passed here between 18 and 19, Luke writes it this way because I think he wants to shock us. He wants to look at this and say, what? What are they doing? How is that possible? It seems so utterly inexplicable. But if we look more closely at verse 18, I think we'll realize it's, it's not really that unexplainable at all. I think the key to understanding how the people can, can just turn so quickly on Paul is to read... These words again, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Well, what words is he talking about? Remember, Paul just presented the gospel of salvation to the people. So it's these words. Turn from these vain things to a living God. Verse 15. I mean, it's easy to just gloss over this because of the fact that there's a whole lot of stuff happening in this passage. 
But realize this, that by their lack of turning, or let's use language that we would use, by their lack of repentance, their lack of changing their perspective, their lack of changing their behavior, they were actually rejecting the gospel message that had just been proclaimed to them. And so in many ways, their actions fit with the other actions of the other people who have rejected the gospel throughout Acts. The people rejected the message by not redirecting their worship, even though they had been clearly confronted with the truth of the gospel just a few moments prior to that. Here's the warning for us. If we are thinking about God wrongly and we fail to adjust our thinking, we need to understand how dangerous that is. When we look at the progression of thought and how quickly that can change. Though God is exceedingly patient, he does not owe us salvation. God's offer of salvation is a gift. If we refuse the gift, we should not assume that it will be offered to us again, you know, whenever we decide to take advantage of it. Young people, I especially want to issue an invitation and a a warning to you. No matter what age you are, you're welcome to put yourself in this category if that helps you to feel better. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards and J.C. Ryle have both written about the fact that when a person is young, you form habits either for good or for bad. And those habits will impact you for the rest of your life. You need to do everything possible, even at your young age, and I would say especially, especially at your young age. Do everything possible to cultivate a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit and to live by faith according to God's word. When God disciplines you, even if that discipline comes through your parents, which it most likely will, you need to respond with a softening of your heart, not with a hardening of your heart toward God nor toward them. Pursue a godly sorrow for sin. Realizing that ultimately you have sinned not just against others, but you have sinned against God. Ask the Holy Spirit to build in you a deep convictional resolve to trust God as you seek not just to manage sin in your life, but as as you seek to kill it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And go to God's word daily. It's the only way, it's the only way to cultivate an ever-escalating awe in Jesus Christ, who is the most fascinating being in the universe. 
Because the more you see Jesus clearly in the Gospels, the more you will realize with ever-deepening joy how utterly worthy of worship he is. Dads, on this Father's Day, and on every subsequent day after this, encourage your children to this end. This is your highest calling as a father. Help your family to see Jesus as he is. Maybe your kids are grown. Maybe you have regrets for failing to point your children to Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus' atoning work on your behalf. And if you have children, if they're still alive, or if you have grandchildren, then take up the mantle. Grab that baton and keep going. Point them to Jesus with all of your might and with all of the time that you have left. Finish well. Now, no matter what age you are, whether you're a father or not, recall, know that when we reject the truth of God's word or when we neglect the leading of the Holy Spirit, it becomes harder, not easier, to overcome sin. It becomes harder, not easier, to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to God. The reason is because sin has a hardening effect on our hearts. So contrast the difference in the way Paul responded to the gospel and to the discipline of the Lord and the way the people responded to the gospel in our passage. When Paul was confronted with the truth about Jesus, and he was confronted by Jesus, by the way, he turned in an instant. He turned from his vain pursuits, which included killing Christians, and he turned toward the living God. He went from sacrificing the lives of others who worshiped Jesus to living his life as a living sacrifice to God as an act of spiritual worship. The people who failed to redirect their passions from worshiping false gods, they should have considered the words of the man who had just healed someone from their community by just speaking to him. Stand up. Should not that have been a wake-up call? I don't know who this guy is, but he just talked to this guy, and that guy's healed. Is there anything you want to say to us? That would have been the right response. Not to say, oh yeah, we've got all this figured out already. We know what's happening. It's Zeus and Hermes. And just fit what happened into your already pre-existing ideas about God and just carry on. That is a rejection of the gospel itself. And obviously, extraordinarily dangerous. Following Jesus is a radical call because God desires 
and rightly even demands every part of us and every part of our lives. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that for the sake of Jesus, he had been imprisoned many times. He had endured countless beatings and was often near death. He said, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Undoubtedly referring to this event. For the sake of clarity, most people who are stoned in, in this fashion do not live to tell about it. An angry mob hurled rocks at Paul. This is gruesome to consider. They hoisted huge rocks at Paul. They whipped small rocks at Paul. They fired jagged rocks at Paul, just ripping his skin open until they were convinced he was dead. Because he stopped moving pelt after pelt after pelt. So they just dragged him out of the city, threw him outside, waiting for the wild animals and the vultures to take him. A few years from now, meaning just a few years from this event, Paul will write a letter to the people in this region, a letter called Galatians, a letter that we just heard read a few moments ago, or at least a portion of it. It's one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. So there's a good chance he wrote this within a few years of this event. What's striking about that is that most of the recipients of that letter would have still been alive. Not only that, many of them probably were eyewitnesses to this event because undoubtedly this was the most important thing happening in the city on that day. If not, they, if they weren't in the city that day, they undoubtedly heard about what had happened. And Paul closes the letter that he wrote to these people. That is, to the people of the region of Galatia with these words. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You may have looked in the mirror at some point and thought, ooh, I had a rough day. If Paul was able to look, in the mirror, to look into a mirror, he would have seen gashes that were scarred over from head to toe. I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. You know this, Galatians. You know this is true. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul was radically changed, though, not by the marks left on his body, but on the marks left on the body of Jesus on his behalf. Paul preached Jesus Christ and him crucified because Paul knew that by his wounds, people are healed. By the stripes of Christ alone have our sins been atoned. 
Paul lived a life utterly abandoned to Jesus because Paul had learned that God's greatest provision is the gift of his son for the forgiveness of sins. That's how he could get up after the believers had gathered around him and go back into the city. Obeying Jesus is worth any opposition we have to endure. Would you pray with me? Our good and gracious Father, we love you so much. We are so grateful for your presence in our lives, and I pray that even now your spirit would be helping us to see with fresh eyes how kind, how continuous your presence has been in our lives, even if we have experienced extraordinarily difficult things. And as the nations rage, as our culture rages, perhaps increasingly against you, I pray that you would cause boldness to rise within us. That you would kill our fear. And that you would help us to live in freedom. So that as many people as possible might come to know the hope that is found in Jesus. And even if the nations raise even if the nations rage against us, we will trust in you. For you are the sovereign ruler over all creation. You are the ancient of days. For that we praise you, and for that we worship you, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.